Hi, I'm Siobhan Hunt, and this is Kindling Conversation, a Kindling Kids radio podcast. Just a quick note before we get into the next episode. If you haven't already, I'd love you to rate and review Kindling Conversation wherever you get your podcasts, or if you enjoy the episode, share it with your friends. All right, thank you, and on with the show. The theme for Reconciliation Week is Don't Keep History a Mystery, and the idea is to highlight the complex, rich and fascinating history of our country's First Nations people. This history is not just about art, stories, warriors and environmentalists. It also includes the terrible treatment of Indigenous Australians from colonists up to the present. Most Australians know about the stolen generations, but many would think that the removal of Indigenous children from their families is also a part of history. It's not, and a new film called After the Apology documents four grandmothers as they try to stop the removal of children from their families. Paddy Gibson is a senior researcher at the Jambana Institute for Indigenous Research and Education, and he was also contributing to the documentary After the Apology. Hi, Paddy. How are you? I'm good. How did you get involved in the research for this film? Um, well, it goes back to when I started my employment at Jambana. I had been working as a um, casual academic at UTS, and but I'm also an activist. I do a lot of organising street demonstrations and public meetings and this sort of thing. And that's where I met uh, Larissa Barrent, who supervises my work, a very strong Indigenous academic who um, wrote this film and directed this film. And me and Larissa met each other through the campaign against the Northern Territory intervention, with just touching on the theme you're raising about history. This really is a reinvention in a lot of ways of uh, the very punitive, openly colonial forms of control of Aboriginal people that existed for a lot of the 20th century in Australia. So in the Northern Territory today, there are explicitly discriminatory laws uh, which allow Aboriginal people's income to be controlled, their land to be controlled, police to have special powers over Aboriginal people by virtue of the fact that they live on Aboriginal land. So I was working with Larissa to research more about the impacts of that policy and travelling around communities in the Northern Territory, speaking with people about their experiences. And through um, those conversations, I was getting approached increasingly frequently, actually, by women, often young women, asking if I could do anything to assist uh, getting their children back. And I'm ashamed to say this was quite a shock to me. I didn't realise the extent to which Aboriginal kids were being removed uh, in the contemporary era. I certainly knew about the history, um, but in the contemporary era, this is, you know, it's of epidemic proportions, really, the the rate of child removal now. So that was my first exposure to the issue, and I did uh, quite a bit of work um, with Larissa's guidance, uh, did quite a bit of work to actually get very involved in a number of child protection cases. So go in and support the family um, in their attempts to advocate uh, for change in the circumstances to the department. You know, maybe they weren't having any access at all to their children. They wanted to establish a regime of contact visits and this sort of thing and moving towards trying to actually have those children reunified with their family. And um, through that process, it was just so confronting to realise the way the system is so stacked against Aboriginal families. You know, they're these very, very powerful agency, uh, the Child Protection Agency, 
and Aboriginal people are essentially powerless um, in that situation. Can I ask, um, you mentioned that you came across this mm. whilst you were doing work in the Northern Territory, but That's right. since it's become a focus... Is it mainly happening in the Northern Territory or is it happening all over Australia? No. So, yeah, it was, so it was out of that work in the Northern Territory that we got a few of the first stories that do actually appear in the film. There's stories in the film, um, you know, from the Northern Territory that come out of that period of research that, that I did do. But moving back to New South Wales, because I was sort of moving between Alice Springs and, and Sydney, where I grew up and where I live, um, I I also came to realise uh, the extent to which this was happening in New South Wales and this was happening in the city of Sydney, including inner Sydney. And actually, um, the rate of removal in New South Wales and Victoria is far greater than that that exists in the Northern Territory. So in a lot of ways, uh, through the intervention in the Northern Territory, what they've done is basically built a child protection or child removal bureaucracy uh, where one sort of didn't exist before. Uh, A lot of the remote communities didn't really have much contact with the child protection system, or if they did, it was far more informal, like maybe a welfare worker might make an arrangement for a child who is in a vulnerable situation to just be looked after by another auntie that wouldn't be formalised through a court process. They'd just leave that alone and leave the community. With the intervention, they put an enormous amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, and continue to put hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Commonwealth funding towards building up this bureaucracy that essentially operates to have surveillance of communities and remove children from those communities. It doesn't really perform any other functions than those two than those two things. And this is very confronting up there, but but they are importing into the Northern Territory something that's existed here on the East Coast for a, a lot longer. When we talk about removal of children, most people hear of children being removed in the modern context and assume that it's because the child is, as you mentioned before, vulnerable, um, perhaps is being neglected and, and needs to be removed for their own safety. What was happening that you saw that was not the case there, I guess? Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is, is that Aboriginal children across Australia are very often in very vulnerable situations by virtue of their socioeconomic position. Like, you know, a lot of communities are systematically underfunded. People are living in overcrowded houses. Sometimes access to, to, to a consistent water supply is actually an issue. Like there's really, really serious poverty and there's really serious social marginalisation, which affects your ability to get employment, education, etc. So th- that structural neglect, if you like, by the government is extreme and something certainly needs to be done about it. But the response from the government to that is to essentially blame the impoverished families for their circumstances. And often because people are so marginalised and are in such a position, it will manifest in ways that, yeah, sure, there are threats to kids, you know, like alcohol misuse, substance misuse, high rates of family violence, high rates of homelessness. Um, I've seen plenty of child protection cases where homelessness is the main rationale for removing the children. So you you know, so you have a you know, this this sort of marginalized population and, and because of that marginalisation, there are risks to children. But rather than saying, well, what do we do to address that issue, which is a systemic issue? How do we get resources to Aboriginal communities to be able to, you know, develop on their own terms, put in place the employment and other things that they need to see, that they want to see? 
in their communities, the response is to fund a child removal bureaucracy and essentially remove increasing numbers of children. So it is a policy approach, a policy approach which blames individual families rather than looking at the systemic issues and which says what we're going to do to deal with this is take kids away on, a, in, on an enormously large scale. You're listening to Kindling Conversation. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I'm speaking with Paddy Gibson, who's a senior researcher at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Research and Education. He's also a contributor to a new documentary film called After the Apology, which is about the removal of Indigenous children from their families. Paddy was just explaining the situation of many families that are finding that their children are removed. Earlier this year on Kindling Conversation, we spoke with actress Radaway Hick about her own personal experience with these removals, and her nephews had been removed from their immediate family and placed into care without the extended family or any kin or blood relatives being notified. Now, she and her father were more than capable and willing to take the boys into their care, but instead they were removed from the family and Rudaway could not find them. So if we say that children are in a risky situation or are vulnerable and need to be taken from their immediate family, is the point about this and what history has shown us has happened before that the best thing is to take children and keep them within their kinship circle? Actually, kids can stay with their parents if there was proper support. You know, like, sure, the circumstances might not be the best for those kids, but with, you know, a little bit of resource to provide more stable accommodation, uh, more stable employment options, family support uh, programs, if they're, you know, I mean, kids are taken from people who, who have mental health problems. You know, that requires mental health treatment and support, not exacerbating that situation by ripping the children away you know so so in a lot of cases some you know properly resourced um, support uh, for families particularly if it's Aboriginal led and it's actually coming from communities themselves who know what they need and who know what families need but they're just systematically denied those resources then the removal wouldn't be needed at all kids would be able to stay at home Uh, but in cases where maybe parents are in real trouble, like there is consistent and ongoing, for example, substance abuse issues, which means children just aren't being supervised at all, or maybe there is really intense family violence that it's just not, not acceptable that children are witnessing that. Or there, yeah, Of course, there are circumstances uh, where there's, you know, uh, where there might be a household in not just Indigenous communities, in all communities, you know, where, where, um, where sometimes children... They can't be in that house any longer. If there was proper respect and resourcing for Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal families, the children would not have to be ripped away from their family. They just wouldn't. You'd be able to go in. And and there are cases where this happens all the time. It's just not properly resourced and not properly done across the system. You'd be able to go in, work with the broader family network and come up with living arrangements for the children, which means they stay with family, they stay safe and and they don't go through the traumatic experience of being forcibly removed which is what we what is what we're dealing with now and we're talking about serious serious trauma turning up with large numbers of police ripping children away screaming in the middle of the night 
dumping them with strangers and then they never ever, you know, for weeks or months on end, they don't actually see anyone who's familiar to them. Um, They go through placement after placement in these sort of short-term care homes. I mean, this is child abuse, you know, what's happening to these kids. Um, it's, It's certainly not anything which is, you know really dealing with the with the issues that were there in their families so yeah i mean personally i think you know forced removal of children just shouldn't be a policy option there's plenty of other things you can do to try and alleviate dangerous situations that some children might be in Um, but if aboriginal communities were properly resourced you know with the resources that they deserve to be able to try and develop on their own terms and have their own priorities for looking after their families it wouldn't be necessary, you know, to have what we have now, this punitive uh, child removal system. You just um, outlined the impact this forced removal has on children, which sounds horrific on its own. But what kind of impact does this have on families who are already survivors of the stolen generations and have already um, seen the impact of forced removal before? Oh, this is one of the most confronting um, elements of doing a lot of this work is when you're working with families where, I mean, I've worked with families, we're literally talking about five generations of removal, you know, like the great-grandparents are alive, they were removed the grandparents were removed, the parents were removed, the, now the kids are being removed, you know, and then, you know, what's going what's to come of their kids? And that, that really is, you know, just such a testament to how destructive uh, this whole policy approach is, you know, going in and disrupting family relationships, ripping kids apart, dumping them with strangers, you know, refusing to take seriously how important for a child's life and a child's development, um, you know, their culture, their family, their sense of identity, all of those things are. It has ongoing, you know, intergenerational consequences. And you look at any report, any report at all, it'll tell you, you know, the prisons are full of people who've been through the child removal system. You know, the suicide statistics, you know, they, again, so, so much over-representation of people who've been through the child removal system. You know, and very unfortunately, you know, when you're talking about the statistics that Aboriginal communities, um, you know, are grappling with, we're talking about like a crisis of global proportions, like there, there aren't other oppressed groups of people in the world that are suffering to this extent and are being punished to this extent. Um, it, it's really extraordinary and, and hopefully with this film more people will see that it's something that needs to be urgently addressed. When you speak about it being urgently addressed, what changes need to be made to stop this practice Resources in the hands of Aboriginal communities themselves must come now. You know, like next year, they have already budgeted for more than a billion dollars to be spent on the out-of-home care system for Aboriginal kids, right? They're going to do that. They're going to spend more than a billion dollars across the country on taking Aboriginal kids away and keeping them in out-of-home care. Why can't we have a guaranteed budget of billions of dollars for actual community development that's going to lead to productivity, productive outcomes, not just for the Aboriginal communities, but for the broader Australian community actually, you know, doing things that that are needed, that those communities need, building the housing, building the infrastructure, looking after the land, all of the, um, you know, all of the things that so many Aboriginal communities are denied that other Australians take for granted. If there was that level of resource to urgently trying to deal with the poverty that exists that's out there, but also funding 
community-based family support programs that can recognise when there are families that are in crisis, can make sure that they um, you know, have support and have the support that they need, can make decisions independent of the department, actual Aboriginal community organisations having the power to make decisions about living arrangements for children when it's not you know, suitable for children to be staying within their house. Those are the sorts of changes that you know, we're calling for through this film, but have already been put on the table in the Bringing Them Home report. If you go back and read the Bringing Them Home report, which was done in 1997, which talked about the historic process of child removal and the fact that that was actually an act of genocide uh, by Australian governments, and then they analysed the contemporary child protection system where things were nowhere near as bad as they are today back in 1997. It's like a drop in the ocean, really, then compared to now with how many kids were being removed. They were saying back in 97, this is a crisis, you're taking kids that don't need to be taken, we need Aboriginal control of decision-making and we need resources in the communities to deal with the to deal with those you know um, that systemic neglect that we've been discussing. So the movie after the apology, I know the premiere is happening in June. Where can people go to see it? Getting this film out is really going to be up to to people themselves um, to make sure that this film is being seen. You know, it's not particularly commercially viable to be telling these sorts of stories. Um, uh, you know, in terms of mass distribution through you know cinemas as blockbusters and things get. So it, it will be up to people to 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 show the film themselves. You can do that by going just onto the After the Apology website, um, and and you can look. There's a section host a screening. You can put on a screening. You can do that um, for the next little period um, through what's called the a Cinema on Demand. Uh, network where if you know you can initiate a screening at a local cinema and en- if enough tickets are sold then the screening goes ahead or you can organize a community screening you know so you can contact the producers get a copy of the film put it on in your school university workplace community organization church trade union whatever it might be that you're involved in you know um, you can try to use this film to bring people together and start a conversation about how we can try and make some change Paddy, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. That's Paddy Gibson. He's a senior researcher at Jambana Institute for Indigenous Research and Education. He contributed to the film after the apology and we'll pop links up on our website so you can get that information that Paddy was just talking about if you'd like to have a screening of the film. Our website is kindling.com.au.